If you would turn with me this morning to the Psalms, we're looking this morning at Psalm chapter 30. Psalm 30. As you turn there, I want to say that I think few honest historians would deny that our country, the United States of America, is, compared in history and to other nations of the world, exceedingly prosperous. By the sovereignty of God, he has poured forth many blessings upon us. And I have to say, right now in our church, God has prospered us in many ways, whether it be numbers or finances or people interested in serving in ministry and all those things. But here's the question. How do we handle prosperity? This psalm addresses the problems we have in this, particularly in the pen of a servant named David. If you would, read this psalm with me together. It's on, I think, what it is, page 430 in your pew Bibles. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored to me You restored me to life from among those who have gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, You made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As we consider these words penned by David, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the very word of God that stands forever, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us understanding, wisdom, and knowledge that we might understand these words with understanding hearts, hear them with hearing ears, and by faith you might help us to apply the meaning of these things to our lives. Help us, Lord, to sing your praises and to know your grace. Lord, I pray that anything spoken here that is not consistent with your own may never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. Legend has it, that Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville pondered American prosperity and said this, America is great because America is good. If America stops being good, it will stop being great. Well, there are several problems with this. First of all, evidently de Tocqueville really never said that. It was attributed to him, but it was not necessarily a quote from him. Secondly, if America is great, it is not because of America's goodness, it is because of God's blessings. And thirdly, America is not and never has been good. Why? Because like every other nation in the history of the world, it's made up of sinners. 
And because we are sinners, we put into chaos what God puts into order. And while there are lots of things I like about America, lots of good things our country has done, a lot of things that I'm wonderfully happy to be an American about, I also know that God will bring our nation, including every other nation on the face of the earth, into judgment. Now, while God may very well remove his blessings because of ingratitude or unbelief, our goodness has nothing to do with God's sovereign blessings. Because we are not good apart from God's grace. But our response to his blessings is important, particularly the church. Because the church doesn't just have the prosperity of wealth or freedom or all the things we enjoy as Americans. In the church, we have the blessings of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and all those things that give us eternal pleasure. How should we respond in our prosperity to God's grace? Well, David, first of all, gives individual praise to the Lord. And what an appropriate response that we would individually praise God for his many blessings. Then he calls the other people in God's church and God's assembly for corporate praise. Together that we would praise him for these blessings. But of course, with that comes this important section of the psalm confession. We come to praise God because we are penitent before him. We recognize his blessings are not due to our goodness, but to his grace. And we confess our sin to him. And then the psalm ends with thanksgiving. What an appropriate response it is when we understand God's blessings. But first of all, this individual praise to the Lord. Now, it's interesting, you may have noticed the title or superscription to this psalm. Again, these titles are not necessarily original with the text. We don't know for sure sometimes if they were original. But it says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And you look at this psalm and you say, why this one? Why this particular psalm? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with a great occasion of opening the doors of the temple and all those things. We, we don't know exactly. In fact, the word for temple here is the word house. Some even may suggest that this was uh, perhaps written by David when he was uh, dedicating his own house. Uh, I tend to think it was in preparation for the dedication of the temple. But it begins with a very important part of all of our lives. That is, with individual praise to the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for these reasons. And he gives a whole bunch. First of all, you have drawn me up. You drew me up. In other words, he's saying here, like God was a person at the well drawing a bucket out of that well filled with water, so for David, some kind of blessing he's indicated, God drew him up. In this sense, in other words, David's describing himself like the water in a bucket that God has drawn him up. We'll get to that in just a minute. Secondly, he says, you did not allow my enemies to rejoice. Again, how does this fit in uh, to this psalm? Thirdly, he says, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. So we get kind of a clue here. Evidently, there was a time of illness or there was a time of uh, disease or something like that that was uh, critical in the life of David and he says in this experience or this uh, circumstance God healed him. 
In the next verse, he says, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. So here is where he was drawn up. In other words, this illness was what seemed to be a mortal illness. He was near death, perhaps dying. And he says here, God brought him up. Again, referring back to this term in the first verse, being drawn up like water in a bucket from a well. So David is saying here, I was on my way to death because of some illness, and you lifted me up from death. And finally, you preserved me, you preserved me to life from among those who go down to the pit. In other words, you preserved me from going to the place of the dead. So this praise is in a specific response to a specific blessing that God has given, responding to David's prayer to heal him. Now, how many times do we pray and we get an answer, even a positive answer, and we forget to praise God? We go about our life and say, that's great, look at how wonderful everything is going, or perhaps a particular situation we've been praying for and God has answered that prayer. And how many times do we find ourselves forgetting all about the fact that this is God answering our prayer? Now this is much like another king you may have heard about. His name was King Hezekiah. Hezekiah in his uh, kingship, he saw a great miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from their enemy destroy, that where God destroyed thousands upon thousands of soldiers. And King Hezekiah became deathly ill, much like the circumstance described in this particular psalm. When he became deathly ill and it looked like he was about to die, he cried out to God for mercy. And in God's mercy, he was sent the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah came to him and gave him the word of the Lord that God was going to heal him and give him 15 more years. And what did Hezekiah do? Well, it's interesting. 2 Kings doesn't tell us. In fact, 2 Chronicles doesn't even give us the details about this illness and recovery. But Isaiah 38, the prophet records that Hezekiah wrote and recorded a psalm of praise. In fact, some of the parts of that particular psalm in Isaiah 38 is much like the words here in Psalm 30. You see, Christians are duty-bound, ready and willing to praise God for his amazing answers to prayer. In this case, it's recovery from a terrible illness. And so then, not only do we praise God for the answers... We also invite God's people to do it together with us. Notice what it says in verse 4. He's already praised God, I will extol you, and gives the reasons. Now it says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. This is a call for corporate praise. Now notice here, it's not necessarily a call for every human being to praise, but particularly for God's people to praise. It's interesting, this word for saints is not necessarily the word that we usually see for saints. This is actually the word for God's covenant faithfulness to his people. These are those who are covenantally faithful to God. In other words, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness people, that is those who are connected to him by faith and are responding to him 
in like loyal faithfulness. And how should they respond? First of all, simply sing praises to God. Sing praises to the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. In other words, we should, when the time is appropriate, sing praise to God together. This is the great privilege of coming together at worship service. I love our worship team up here, but they're not designated to be the only ones that are singing praises to God. That's why we have corporate singing together. Together we're singing praises to God for all that he has done for us. Simply sing to the Lord and give voice to the mention of his holiness. You see, that's what this phrase, give thanks to his holy name, means. Give voice to the mention of his holiness. In other words, when we recognize the character of God and the fact that in his character, not only is he holy, and he doesn't have to do anything for us because by nature we're not holy, we're sinners, then every mention, every remembrance of who God is and combined with what he has done should cause us to have the joy of worship. The Lord's covenantally faithful together praise the holiness of God and his name. And then we also do something else. This is kind of an interesting verse. In fact, this is probably the most quoted verse from this particular psalm is verse 5. As we seek to consider the transforming grace of the Lord. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In other words, as we call together for us to worship God for his blessings his, and praise him for his grace, we consider these things. His anger is but a moment. He has momentary anger. Now remember, this is a believer calling other believers to worship God. And he recognizes that God sometimes will be angry at his people. In other words, he's reminding us all of our tendency to sin and stray from God. That We just sang the hymn where it says we're prone to wander, right? We are prone to wander because of our sinful nature. And when we wander, God gets angry at sin. And he says here this is momentary anger but there's life-lasting favor. In other words, as we ponder God's grace and we ponder the blessings that he's given us, we remember that these blessings are found in these two things. One is God's discipline for our sin, in which he will at times place us in positions where we will feel pain or we will feel uh, disappointment or other things because he is disciplining us for our sins. And yet, in all of this, why does he do this? He does this because he loves us with an everlasting love. His love is so great that he wants to turn us from our sin so that we can experience the fellowship that we have with him. And this relationship with God, even while he disciplines us, is life-lasting. And then, of course, here... When we think of the emotional aspect of this, when we go through discipline, when we go through pain, when we may perhaps have gone to illness or have experienced other consequences of sin or other things, 
It says, weeping may tarry for the night. Again, it's momentary. It might last all the night. The night might be dark. If we look at night in a literary way or a poetic way, night may last for a season or a time. In fact, this particular thing may last for all of our lives. And yet it says this, but joy comes in the morning. You see, God's grace is so great that even if we were to deserve eternity in hell, yet by God's grace, those whom he has claimed to be his people will instead have an eternity in heaven because God has shed his grace on us through Jesus Christ. And when he has brought us into his family by believing in Jesus Christ, confessing our sins and turning to him in faith, then he will remind us that despite all of the difficulties of today, all of the difficulties of our life, it is but a blip, a blip in history. We will be with him through all eternity, and that makes for eternal corporate praise. Now I have to say, verse 5 sounds like a Hallmark thing, doesn't it? Moments that last a lifetime, that's what Hallmark says. But the Bible says, God's anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. You see, we consider the history of God with his people. Over and over again, Israel's sin resulted in momentary anger by God. Sometimes he would discipline them. Sometimes many people would lose their lives in this discipline. Sometimes there would be plagues that, that plagued the Israelites, and many people would get sick or even die. Sometimes he sent serpents to bite them. Sometimes he would have them lose a battle or have enemies take over them, and they would experience a great time of distress, and they would call out to God. But in the overall experience, of God's timing, this is but a moment. God never stopped in his faithfulness to exhibit what was necessary to maintain his eternal promises, the promises like to David himself, who was told that there will always be someone from your line, a seed that shall reign forever. There were times when that promise looked dim, there were times when it looked as if there would never again be a people of God in the nation of Israel or in the geographical region of Israel. There were times when it looked like the people had been totally obliterated and taken off, never to be found in God's grace again. And yet time and time again, God brought them back and God has given them a forever king in Jesus. You see, the Lord loves those he disciplines as a father, the son he delights in. Now you might be wondering, why are we talking so much about sin and confession when this psalm seems to be more about God's grace and his blessings? Well, it's because we get more background information in verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 is really a confession of David for why he was in the position he was in. You see, God had given him prosperity. Verse 6 says, as for me, I said in my prosperity. This word for prosperity means ease or comfort or well-being. And so we translate it into English prosperity. How did he handle the favor of the Lord? Here's how he handled the favor of the Lord. In this particular instance, in this circumstance, 
Here's what he did. He said, in prosperity, I will never stumble. I shall never be moved. In fact, the word for moved here is the word stumble, totter, fall. He says, I will never be caused to stumble. I will always be up here in my exalted place with all of my stuff. Then he said, by your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, that's good. He's attributing his prosperity to God. But in essence, he's saying this, the Lord set my strong mountain. In other words, he's repeating the idea he shall never be moved. That's kind of funny. The previous psalm, Psalm 29, tells us that even the mountains of Syrian and Hermon, uh, those things, Hermon and Lebanon, uh, those mountains, God can shake and he can cause them to be shifting uh, like an earthquake. And yet here in this psalm it says David considers himself a strong mountain because of his prosperity and all his wealth and all the extravagant blessings God has given him. He has it made. Here's how God responded. It says this, you hid your face. I was dismayed. Now why did he hide his face? Well, it's because David was being proud and arrogant. And in David's prosperity, rather than simply cry out to God, again praising him for all the blessings and maintaining his understanding that at any moment God could take those blessings away, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, Yet here he's saying in his pride and arrogance, I've got it made. I will never lose my place. And so the Lord disciplined him. It doesn't tell us how. David merely says, you hid your face and I was dismayed. Here's how David responded to the Lord's discipline. First of all, the Lord hid his face. Again, what does that mean? It could mean that some of these blessings began to disappear it could mean that God's presence was not so intimate. It could mean that when David was seeking the Lord's face and asking for his will in different matters, God was silent. He did not send prophets to him. We don't know all the circumstances here. But here is what happened. This word for dismayed is the word terrified, out of your senses. In other words, when David saw that the Lord was not intimately present with him in the same way that he was used to in fellowship, then David was scared out of his mind. It tells you something about David's relationship with the Lord. And it's not David's part of his faithfulness to God. It's God's grace to him that David felt so close to God in this response and so what did he do? Well, here's verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. He's going back over what he had done in the original context of this psalm. In other words, verses 1 through 3 tell us the results of what had happened after this confession. God had healed him. Verses 4 and 5 invite the congregation to sing praises for what had happened, but verses 6 through 10 really give us the historical context of how this came to be to begin with. God had prospered David in amazing and powerful ways. David, in his arrogance and pride, at least in one moment of his life, decided that he was 
He had it made and he didn't have to worry about anything ever again. And so God disciplined him, perhaps giving him illness, perhaps giving him some kind of understanding of the spiritual state that he was in, that apart from God's grace, his sin would lead to death. And then he cried out to God for mercy. And it's interesting how he does that. He says in verse 9, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? He's wrestling with God about how his death would look in the face of the world and how it might or might not glorify God. He's basically telling God, what will glorify you more, my death or my life? And he says, Lord, if I die, I'm going to turn to dust. I'm not going to be glorifying you anymore. Don't you want to bring me back to to health and and to a, a place where I can praise you so that the whole world can see your healing grace? And it goes back to this idea that his enemies have not rejoiced. Why have they not rejoiced? Well, it's because David was healed instead of dying. And so instead of saying, oh, look, here's David. He claimed faith in God, and here uh, he's let him die like everybody else. Here they can, re- they can see that God, David's God is a great God who even gives healing in life. Now, it doesn't mean that God had to respond the way David wanted, but he did here. David's context is not, look, God, I just want more years. I I want to enjoy the prosperity you've given me. In faith, he's looking at what would glorify God more, his health or death. Now, both of those things, if they're God's plan and his sovereignty and his ways, both of these things could glorify God. But in his mercy, God answered David's prayer, and his prayer is this. It's a desperate plea for grace and help. It's an understanding that here is the guy who was just saying, I'm up here on the mountain, I can't ever be moved. And he becomes sick to the point of death, and he realizes, I can't even save myself. God, I need your help. You see the change from arrogance and pride to humility and reliance upon the Lord. Now David was no spiritual slouch. His heart was constantly attuned to worship. In fact, he's the one who would write, I'd rather be in your courts one day than somewhere else a thousand. Yet even David, in times of prosperity, evidently in arrogance and pride, took God's blessings, and what did he do with them? He played king of the mountain, didn't he? You remember what that's like as a kid, particularly if you lived up north where there was snowfall, and the plow had snowed a great pile of, or plowed a great pile of snow up beside a parking lot or something, and you and your friends go out onto the mountain and you play king of the mountain, and you go up there, and if you're the biggest and you're the most bulliest guy that's up there, you think, I'm up here, nobody can get me down. And that's really what David's doing. In his pride, in his arrogance, he says, I'm the king of the mountain. But you know what is most impressive is how David's heart was tender to the absence of the Lord's intimate presence. I don't think this is David's ability, David's strength, David's prosperity. This was the Holy Spirit at work in him. When he recognized that God was not in his pride, 
when he recognized that God was withholding his favor for a time, hiding his face from him, and that relationship did not seem so intimate at the moment. That's what sin does. That's what disregard for God's grace does. It doesn't break his relationship with us, because if we truly are his people, we will be preserved forever. But it does interfere with our fellowship with him. And David's heart is so tender that when he recognizes that fellowship is not so sweet anymore, he becomes out of his senses and terrified about what might happen next. But out of his penitent heart, God has answered. And so verses 11 and 12 return to the present. The present circumstance, the reason for this psalm is an inclusio, that is, the beginning and the end, emphasize what is taking place in the psalm. It is praise to God. The middle tells us why. But here it is. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Now this is Thanksgiving, isn't it? We're turning mourning into dancing. You see, it's not just that they stopped mourning. This, this is something I think that, that, that we, we focus on so much is that we, we want to just stop the grief. But, but sometimes even when there are still tears on the face, even when we have that, that phrase that my, what my wife likes to pass on to others, that we ask God sometimes to collect our tears in his bottle. Yes, that's a scriptural verse. Even when those things happen, God can turn our mourning, not just to stop it, but turn it into rejoicing and celebrating. Now, it doesn't mean that all the grief is, is, is completely gone. It doesn't mean that we're going to be just happy, happy all the time. But there's joy here, knowing that God has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. He has instead blessed us. And I think of all the Bible stories about how this takes place. The parable of the widow who found her lost coin, turning mourning, wondering how she's going to pay for her next meal into dancing and celebrating and inviting the neighbors to come. The disciples who encountered the resurrected Savior, the passage that was read earlier from the New Testament, when they saw Jesus for the first time, what rejoicing that must have been. The prisoner of sin who has been set free. From mourning into dancing. You see, to the end of this, it says this, that my glory, the word for that is on account of or for the sake of or to the purpose or end of this, that my glory, what an interesting way to put it. Everything about me, all the ways in which you've made me in the image of God, everything that I am and with my whole being, I might sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. It's eternal praise. You see, what a psalm to recognize. On the one hand, God's wonderful blessings. On the other hand, how sometimes we just spurn God for being the one who blesses. And in our arrogance, think that we're going to, in pride, just be blessed forever when God can take it away at any moment and then the turn there, when God disciplines, at times he will withhold those blessings or remove them from us or give other consequences that we might experience what it's like not to have those blessings. And then the turn, 
to turn in penitence as we confess to God the sin and as we recognize and plead to him for help, how God will in the end give us blessings again that we might rejoice in him. So let me ask the question, how about you? If and when God prospers you, how have you responded? Is it with pride and arrogance or with humble thanksgiving? When God disciplines you, how do you respond? With anger or bitterness or questioning or with penitence and seeking his face? I think the last question is this. Will you join me in praising the Lord for his blessings? Both his blessings of prosperity and his blessings of discipline. Will you praise God with me for that? Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song together. Father, as we consider your work in the life of David, and as we consider in this prosperous land of many blessings, our own sin, our own arrogance, our own pride, Lord, how sometimes we even act, as some preachers say, as if we are practical atheists, Lord, help us by your grace to see the error of our ways that we might come to you in humility, ask for your blessings by faith, and rejoice in the answers you give. We pray these things.